0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurotic Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and I'm bringing you a solo episode tonight, but my co-host Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at FuturoticPodcast.com contact dash Futurotic if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on this podcast. I just wrapped up an interview that I've actually wanted to do for a while with Peter St. Ange, who is a, an economist who spends a lot of time thinking about subjects like technological unemployment and what the ultimate long-term impact of artificial intelligence will be on the economy. Given the rise of chat and competitor large language models and all of the fear that has arisen as a result of their obvious power and obvious usefulness, I wanted to talk to an actual economist who has given a lot of thought to these issues about whether he thinks there's anything to worry about, whether he thinks that ultimately a sufficiently powerful general intelligence system will replace the need for labor, and if so, what the world will look like on the other side. More broadly, I think that there is a real paucity of sound economic analysis coming out of futurism. A lot of futurists know a great deal about how operating systems work or what quantum computing will ultimately yield in in way of advances in material science or life sciences. But I don't think there are that many of them who are on a solid footing with economics. And so one of the things we like to do here is fill those gaps. And I think this episode is a great addition to that series. So uh, without further ado, here is our interview with Peter St. Ange, and I hope you enjoy it. Tonight we're joined by Peter Saint-Ange. Peter is a PhD economist at the Heritage Foundation, a Mises Institute Fellow, and a former MBA professor in Taiwan. He's a fan of the Austrian School of Economics, which build he's a fan of the Austrian School of Economics, which build the field on solid foundations. And what drives him is understanding uh, how to make the world more prosperous using smart policy and technological advancements. Uh, if you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, com. <laughs> Peter, thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the stuff that you're working on today.
1: Uh, so I am an economist at the Heritage Foundation, I'm also a fellow at the Mises Institute. I'm a former professor in Taiwan, where you don't have to put up with the political whatnot. Uh, and before that, I worked in corporate marketing, in telecoms, and then in the biggest, one of the biggest toy companies in Japan, Takara. They make the Transformers, Robots in Disguise, and nowadays, I'm best known for shooting random videos every day. I actually used to do that. Well, I used to give little lectures at the beginning of the MBA lectures just to kind of wake everybody up. And I would just kind of grab stuff that's in the headline and try to teach something about economics or about marketing or whatever. And so I basically do that anyway. <laughs> I just throw them up on uh, Twitter and YouTube nowadays. Well, fantastic. That must...
0: uh. That's quite a journey. You had sort of a, a wandering, rambling pass as I did as well.
1: Yeah, I actually retired for a while when I was 25. I hit the jackpot on the dot com boom, which for those who are younger, it was essentially identical to the crypto boom now. So you had randos living in their mom's basement making, you know, five, 10 million. So anyway, I retired on that and then went around and backpacked for a while. And it was good to know that that's actually really boring. You know, like when you have a job, you dream of just being able to, you know, run off and spend six months on a Thai island or something, but it actually gets really boring after a while. And you start asking like, what am I doing with my life? When I move on, nobody's ever gonna, even know I was here, <laughs> like I'm just occupying space. I'm like a space heater for the earth. And so anyway. That was why I went back and got the PhD and figured I should do something useful in life. Well, fantastic. Why did you choose economics? I've always loved economics. It is sort of, you know, that scene in The Matrix where he finally has his epiphany and he looks around and it's no longer a door, it's no longer a hallway. Now it's just pure code. Right, and for an economist, that's that's the appeal, right? Is that all of these things around you, you, you can sort of see the underlying code. Like, why are people doing that? Why are not they not doing the other thing? Why are they miserable? Why are they happy? What are their goals? What do they think they're trying to achieve? Uh, and you know, of course, governments misuse economics because they want to use that code to try to influence people. And so a lot of what I do talk about is complaining about the government, but I would dearly love to never, ever talk about the government in a way for it to just fade out to irrelevancy because it really is very stupid. Like, you know, I've spent a couple of years in the political world now, and I mean, you would be amazed how stupid Congress is. It is really, really striking. I'm not just picking on them. Like, literally, if I go to, like, a state legislature, where you know they're part-timers, they run at a used car dealership or something. Those are normal humans, okay? You can talk to them like a real human, like an adult. Congress, people, oh my goodness, they're really, really stupid. So uh, it's a horrible world. I, I, I sort of, in a way, I hate what I do because I hate <laughs> the political world, but it's sort of like you're standing on the wall and you don't stand on the wall because you enjoy it, <laughs> right. you know? Why are you protecting Byzantium? Because I love standing on walls. No, you're doing it for a larger purpose, so. To
0: to hold back the barbarians. Yeah, I've I've often wondered about that, and I just, this wasn't the direction I intended on going, but um, I I figure I'm just gonna ask uh, an economist, you know, while while I have you here, if if you have any thoughts about the decline in the quality of the elites, right? So I'm listening to Congress. Oh yeah, um, for sure. So so somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, and I mean, you know, we all use technology all the time Whose internal right. workings we don't understand that well, but it, but it is clear that these people are just nowhere in the ballpark. They don't vaguely understand what's going on, and they propose mm-hmm. to legislate it. But yeah, I mean, you can read Benjamin Franklin's writings, you can read Winston Churchill's writings. Uh, you know, he's famous for having written a five-volume history of the English-speaking peoples, and I, I can't imagine many people in Congress could get through five volumes of of history on anything at all. And and I just don't know where we went wrong along the way, if that's just sort of part of the dynamics of democracy and these people have to engineer consent day by day. I really don't know, but but it has been a noticeable decline in the quality of the elites, especially in the states.
1: Yeah, I think there's two parts of it. One of them, the elite itself, I think, is worse than normal because it is particularly corrupt. And I think that's tied to the second reason, which is the decline of the education system. A sort of something i did a couple of years ago for fun was to run political let's see the inauguration speeches for each president through a flesh Kincaid calculator okay and that assigns a grade level to your writing mm-hmm. right so if you're writing articles for example and you think maybe this is hard to read then you run it through the flesh kinkade and it tells you it's 14th grade and you say well no way That's You know, what is that, uh, college plus two? And so, no, nobody's going to read that. So then you try to dumb it down, right? Or anyway, you try to make it more understandable. All right, so anyway, you can take these inaugural speeches and you can run them through the flesh, Kinkade. And this is from memory, but if you go back to 1900, which is before sort of the big government captured education, you go back to 1900, the average inaugural speech was like 12th or 14th grade. Now, remember, inaugural speeches are written to appeal to the common man. Mm -hmm. So the people who were writing those speeches, they thought that 12th to 14th grade was the median American voter. Okay? And then you can go through over time, and it's just straight lines. So by the time you get to Obama, it's like 8th grade. By the time you get to Trump, Trump was like 7th grade. Joe Biden was 4th grade all right i mean yeah. it is and it's funny because the average like if you talk to the average person like the average educated person they're under the impression that the spread of public education the fact that everybody can get a government education they think that that has improved the electorate <laughs> that is comical we are so stupid and hurt so my kids homeschool you will hear this from any homeschooler all right they will talk about how their kids are doing like particle physics at 70 years old This is not because homeschool is magical, all right? Like most homeschoolers, they they do it for religious reasons. They're not particularly educated, all right? So how do their kids come out as, you know, just these amazing geniuses? I mean, it's possible that the kids are just all, you know, born geniuses. What I think is really happening is that the school system is so bad, we have no idea how it crushes children, makes them stupid, makes them into stupid adults who then become stupid elites. Now, if you combine that in stupidization of our culture and you combine that with an elite that is corrupt, so they're not even chosen based on merit or based on intelligence. They're they're chosen, I mean, essentially, can they dance to the ideological tune that's right. currently in vogue? You put those two, two together, and yes, we have an amazingly stupid elite compared to what we've had in the past. There's a great book by Hans-Hermann Hoppe called Democracy, the God That Failed, And he contrasts what happens in an aristocratic or a monarchical society where the natural elite tends to be uh, amplified and promoted and given social prestige. Now, I think that we delayed that, even though America was democratic, I think that we delayed that um, the sort of fall from that state, the fall from this natural hierarchy to this sort of fiat hierarchy, um, I think we delayed it because we had a very limited constitution. So we had a very, very small government. There were only a few things that the government was allowed to do. There were, There's like eight things listed in the constitution, and it's not allowed to do anything else. Of course, the Supreme Court uh, over time has not noticed the 10th Amendment that forbids all the rest of it. But anyway, I think that that's why the U.S. lasted a lot longer than you would expect for a democracy. I think that's why in 1900 we still had smart people. And then I think the rest of the world pulled the wrong lesson from the U.S. So Europe, for example, looked at the U.S. and they said, well, look, the U.S. is powerful. They were looking in 1914 when Europe, uh, or 1918, when Europe um, became democratic. They were looking at the U.S. They said, well, you know, the U.S. is dem- democratic. and It's not a complete disaster. So I guess we could be too. I think they pulled the complete wrong lessons, which is that what was protecting the U.S. was that the Constitution kept the government so small that we could still have that natural uh aristocracy sort of determining social mores so for example you know the poor knew that if you wanted to become unpoor you had to work hard and you had to stay away from the demon rum and you know it was sort of this commonsensical stuff as opposed to accepting yourself just the way you are and all the rubbish that they uh plug in their heads today that lead to generational poverty and so of course europe went democratic and you know we meanwhile became more totalitarian in our democracy and so now i think what we're seeing is the sort of stereotypical democracy through history where it gets very, very stupid and very, very cruel. It does things like, say, force people to take experimental therapies that could kill them. I won't describe it more than that
0: because I don't- We won't be able to put it on YouTube. Yeah, we won't be able
1: to put it on YouTube. Yes, there you go. So we'll just leave it at that.
0: Well, that's uh, that's that's fascinating and uh, somewhat disheartening. So how, how's this for a transition? And now that we've covered stupidity, let's talk about intelligence and specifically yes. artificial general intelligence. So um, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you have given some talks and written some on the question of technological unemployment. Now, Thomas and I, by my coast, we have we're on the record saying, you know, I'm not, we're not afraid of ChatGPT GPT taking our jobs, GPT four taking mm-hmm. our jobs. It's a little harder for me to think through the ramifications of having a general intelligence. Like, an in, in algorithmic intelligence that can operate at roughly the level that I can, or m- maybe even better, right, that, that right. you can spin up or spin down, you can clone them, you can fork them so that they share a knowledge base, they can communicate, you know, almost telepathically, they don't sleep, they don't need to rest. Uh, right. in, in such a case, and, and I, I don't see any reason to rule out the possibility that something like that is on the horizon, maybe it's 50 years or 100 years off, that's not that far, mm-hmm. right, so in such a case... Do the arguments from comparative advantage or absolute advantage still hold? Uh, You know, is there anything to worry about in a a world where you've got these artificial minds that that can replace humans?
1: Yeah, so I guess there's a foundational question that separates the answer into two possibilities. So the question would be, um, do these super powers have volition? Do they want things in life? Or are they a tool? And I assume, generally speaking, that they will be a tool. Uh, like a computer program, they will be very, very good at what they do, but they won't, like, your your computer doesn't come up with things that it wants to do on its own. Uh, now, people could theoretically create AIs that wanna do things, but that doesn't seem to me, seems to me that that's less useful than the obedient AI, and so probably less money goes into that. And so I think that the first thing that we're gonna get is that obedient AI. So. You know, it's it's uh, basically a super tool. It's like electricity and a computer and take five other really useful inventions and put it all together. And so the kind of world that that gives us is it makes uh, it basically does what what electricity did on steroids. So it makes us fantastically wealthy. Um, you know, it replaces almost all jobs if we look at agricultural mechanization. I mean, it's really fossil fuels. It wasn't electricity. But anyway, agricultural mechanization replaced something like 80, 90% of the jobs in the 19th century. So, where did all those people go? Did they starve to death? You don't know, no, they found other jobs. Because, so one of my favorite metaphors for it is an escalator, where you can walk up the stairs slowly, or you can take a very fast escalator, but every so often you have to take one step down. Okay so when the AI comes for your job let's say i don't know you're you're an oil uh, refneck and now you've got to step you know one down and now you got to build back decks or something All right you're probably or you're certainly going to make less money building the back decks why certainly because otherwise you would have been doing it already so you have to take one step down to to your next best profession but the automation itself is making society around you much much richer so i i would welcome it um, you know, there's a famous essay by Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat, uh, the Candlemaker's Petition, where, it's, right, and he sort of, it's satirical, but he takes the voice of Candlemakers who are upset that the sun is giving away everything for free, and so they want to ban the sun. They want the government to force everybody to close their shutters all day, so they have to use candles. Um, you all, you know, this argument is often used for international trade, but in this case it would also be true of AI. So if AI does everything better than us, it is the gift of a lifetime. Um, There's another metaphor, and again, this is used in international trade, but the economics are identical, about the magic car factory. So some guy, he comes up with this miracle way to make cars and they cost like a 10th the price and it's incredible. He's got a secret factory in New Orleans and one night, the investigative reporter sneaks in to see what's his secret, what does he know that nobody else knows, and it turns out that he actually imports cars, okay, he, he rolls them off a boat, all right, then they come out the other end, and so he's exposed, and, you know, this guy was a fake all along, and, well, yeah, but wait a minute, like, the things were one-tenth the price, like, why do you care how it's happening on the inside? Um, so, yeah, I, I I would completely welcome an AI that could do everything. It would be, you know, just like the sun itself. Yes, the sun takes away a lot of jobs, and thank goodness, so we don't have to carry candles around 24-7 and the rest of it. Now, I think that the one caveat here, and where I do have sympathy for the people who worry about it, is that we do not have a perfectly free market in job creation. Mm-hmm. Right. So governments stand in the way. They have a variety of reasons for doing that. It gets worse and worse over time. And so, you know, we can sort of paint two pictures. One of them is, say, Hong Kong, where it moved up the productivity scale. Hong Kong manufactures essentially nothing today. When I was a kid, it was almost entirely a manufacturing based economy. So all those jobs went away because Hong Kongers moved up into finance and real estate and services and and whatnot. On the other hand, you then have Detroit, right? Detroit also lost its, you know, sort of central industry cars, and they did not replace it. The jobs did not come. Uh, Detroit, like, like Hong Kong, had tens of thousands of leftover workers who were, in theory, useful. You could have done something, uh, but nobody did anything. And, you know, a lot of those people just became jobless for life. And so what's the difference between Detroit and Hong Kong? I think the difference is the degree the degree to which the government stood in the way It made it difficult. You had to get permits. You had to get licensing. There's a lot of states in the U.S. where you literally need a government license to braid hair. Whereas, you know, if you take a lot of Asian countries, for example, they generally think of the informal business sector, so like vendors, hair braiders, things like that. They think of those as the social safety net. Okay, so rather than giving people welfare, you make it really easy to start like a noodle shop Okay, And then that that becomes the social safety net. So if somebody loses their job, they open a noodle shop, they run that until they find another job. Uh, In Taiwan, for example, you could rent a noodle cart. Uh, You pay like 50 bucks to put up a sign, whatever it is you want to cook, and you just do that while you're job hunting. You go out and do that at night. You look for the job in the daytime. Once you get the job, you take the cart back, you get your deposit, good to go. So what we've, I think, done in a lot of the West is we have cartelized the economy where those entry-level jobs uh, are illegal. Many of them still exist, but they tend to be gray market, and gray market carries risks. You also can't really build capital. You're sort of one step ahead of the tax man to get in trouble. And so we've essentially squashed those industries, um, I suspect because of corruption. So, you know, companies don't want to compete with uh, say cheap vendors or local restaurants don't want to compete with vendors. like food trucks have had a heck of a time in the US because local restaurants say it's unfair competition. So if you multiply that across the entire economy, I think the risk here in the US or in the West, in rich countries is that AI comes in, it wipes out the jobs, and the governments stand in the way of the new jobs. There I think, yes, you can get a Detroit outcome that could theoretically be the entire world.
0: Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati Podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Okay, so I I wanna summarize this because I I care a lot about getting this right. So as I understand it, you say that as long as what we have is a general purpose tool that is not itself pursuing some goal, then you'll have displacement effects in, in as much as people have to take a step down, but then they'll do the yes. the next thing that was on their, you know, the the option B on their opportunity cost hierarchy, and they'll still be right. able to, you know, earn a living and, and do just fine, so long as the government doesn't make the economy rigid and sclerotic and unable for labor markets to clear. Um, and you you further said, and and then if if we end up in a situation where there's just so many AGIs and super AGIs that they're able to do everything. So be it right that's just like having the sun showering down goods and services and whatever you could possibly want yep. and and that would be better uh, do you worry at all about a meaning crisis that might come out of that i mean a lot of our lives are organized around work and i, I, mean, I fully buy that a world in which algorithms are able to to basically replace all human labor is a world that is materially more prosperous than the one that we have now but I do sort of worry about twiddling my thumbs all day and just, you know, summoning a Diet Coke whenever I want it and summoning, you know, having the AI write, you know, fresh Shakespeare that no one's ever read before. It, it, it does seem as spectacular as such a world would be. It's sort of hard for me to know how I would organize my life. Like what? What?
1: Yeah. I, well, we were. Uh, yeah, we were just talking about that uh, at the start there, backpacking around and having everything for free, and then you start doing yeah. what. What is their life? And- it's like
0: wealthy beach bums at that point. You're, you're beach bums who are served by an algorithmic God, which seems like it would still have some problems.
1: Yeah, and personally, I went for a PhD as a, you know, for fun, because uh, I wanted to understand how the world works. Um, I, it, You know, people face this all the time when they hit retirement age. And, you know, there are some people who go to work just for fun. Uh, they volunteer. Social jobs are still going to exist because there's value in humanity right? So even today, if you buy a handmade chair, uh, it is almost certainly going to have more flaws than a mass produced chair from China. Why? Because it it wasn't made with a machine. It's got all kinds of imperfections to it. And yet people are willing to pay 10, 50, 100. If they like the maker, like if they're interested in the maker's backstory or or whatever, then, you know, they could pay, I mean, look at art, right? (laughs) You know, what's the value of, of a Picasso versus a computer-generated Picasso, so Pete, there is value in the fact that things are created by humans. There's also the value in human interaction, right? So, uh, you know, standing in front of an audience is interesting for a lot of people in a way that standing talking to a wall is not. I mean, they're they're you know the depends com- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <it always baves laughs> on the audience. Yeah, it always depends uh, on the audience. Yeah, you know, having somebody to keep your grandma company in the old folks' home. I mean, just Pe- people are useful simply for being humans, not, not just because they act like humans, but because they actually are humans. And if you find out that your handmade chair was actually made by a machine, it's kind of disappointing, right? So the 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 humanness of the production has some value. Now it doesn't really matter how much value, because what happens is that in in that you know AI as the sun world where we are fantastically wealthy. Uh, you know, still there will be certain human activities that we want, you know, so uh, and that sort of kernel of value means that there will, you know, still be an incentive to become more personable, to become entertaining online, to be an influencer, uh, to develop your, you know, human side. Um, there will still be incentive. That will still be enormously well paid. You know, we might have a world where, I mean, we could even theoretically eventually get a UBI or something like that. I hope we don't because um, in current society, it's sort of, uh, I think it sort of deadens um, the impulse to create. But anyway, you know, we can imagine some world like that where a lot of people don't work and some who do um, would, you know, they would specialize in very human things. So at that point, I guess, if we want a metaphor to today's economy, think of it like YouTube, where there's lots and lots of people who post on YouTube. Some of them have a few followers. Some of them have a bunch of followers. Um, but even the people with a few followers, they do it because they enjoy it. And, you know, in this in this AI utopia, uh, we will still engage in in human activities. Some people will be paid for it. Most people will not, but they will still do it because they'll enjoy it. And then they, they don't have to worry about earnings because everything is so
0: cheap at that point. Right. Like if you're making a dollar a week, it really doesn't matter mm-hmm. if that dollar buys you basically or you can 3D print a house for, for you know, $10 or just nano assemble it. it. It really doesn't matter that much.
1: Yeah, which is more or less the world we live in. Um, You know, there are tens of thousands of people who are homeless in Los Angeles and San Francisco. They earn absolutely zero income and yet there they are. Uh, Why? Because our society is so incredibly wealthy that it just like drips off (laughs) things like food or healthcare or library books that historically would have been, you know, completely out of reach for people. So if you go back 500 years, if you were homeless, living on the street, you were dead. I mean, you were you were somewhere on the pro- on that um, process between here and death. And today, people can do that for years and years. And you know, so we already live in that utopia. Uh, the AI world just upgrades it.
0: What do you think happens to price theory in a world like that, where you you can basically just summon goods or services and? arbitrary quantities. As I understand it, price theory is, it's the study of how prices coordinate different branches of economic activity, right? But I mean, if things are basically free or pretty damn close to it, uh, like what, what happens to organized economic activity? Does any of that still hold?
1: It absolutely holds because there are always scarce things. Um, there's scarce space on earth. There's scarce space in the universe. There's scarce attention span. Uh, there's scarce, the girl that you want to marry and are trying to get her attention, there there, there are always scarcities in life. Uh, even if life goes on forever, you know, there's still the chance of dying at any given moment. Uh, the sun could flare up unexpectedly. And so, you know, even that is just a, a probabilistic lifespan. There is no thing as a guaranteed forever because we simply haven't understood the universe well enough yet. So there is always scarcity. And, you know, because life has some theoretical limit, therefore time is scarce to some level. So, The price mechanism doesn't break or anything. It just shifts onto other things. And again, you know, this is the world we live in. So when I was a kid, there were uh, four channels on TV and there were four TV shows uh, at any given time. And you had to pick the best one. Okay, now you go on YouTube. Every single day, there's probably more content that I want to watch on YouTube than I have time in my life for. Right? And so, you know, we have sorting mechanisms because... Got a kitty. My can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have sorting mechanisms because time is scarce. And so, you know, we use filters or we use other heuristics. We subscribe to channels because we usually like their stuff. So we use various ways to economize on our scarce time. Um, but and you know early when the internet did come out and people noticed that there was going to be a super abundance of content people did suggest that oh, the price mechanism will fall apart no it just shifts on to other things that are not scarce you know if you're in a submarine that has lost power then oxygen is very very scarce if you then open the door and it's floating then oxygen has now shifted it's not that the price mechanism changed it's just that that particular good has shifted from scarce to relatively uh, less scarce.
0: It, was, it shifts from uh, non-economizable to economizable and back very quickly, depending on the yes. your successes you're in. Uh, yes. I, I, I have some follow-up questions about the AGI thing, but I actually just wanted to ask you like a technical basic economics question about uh, market clearing for labor. I mean, do, do you mm-hmm. put any stock into the idea of sticky wages at all? Or is this a Keynesian artifact that just doesn't have much validity? I mean, just naively as a non-economist, I mean, it it, it does seem kind of plausible to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there are a number of things. Uh, uh, So the short answer is yes. I think wages are sticky. I think all prices are sticky. Um, I mean, it seems obvious. So like your rent doesn't micro adjust by tenths of a penny every time, you know, Zillow comes out with a new estimate uh, of houses in your area. So I think prices are sticky. And sort of if we zoom out, there are three popular uh brands of economics nowadays one of them is the chicago school one is the austrian school and one is the keynesian the chicago school i'm gonna caricature it in its extreme version is that everything automatically adjusts because markets are perfect right and so in that world then you know if uh like that that's sort of the right-wing uh economics that would hold that say wages uh move very quickly and then in the Keynesian world, and, and by the way, in that Chicago world, because markets are perfect, therefore, um, there is no sin in the world except what's caused by government. Uh, in the Keynesian world, markets are always imperfect, and so government has to step in like a god and fix everything. All right. And then the third version is Austrian, which is really just classical economics. It's it's called Austrian today. Uh, it It was a a pejorative issued by the sort of regime economists in Germany. Um, It just basically means outsider economics because they were referring to the unfunded classical economists as opposed to themselves who were getting government money. So anyway, um, so according to classical or uh, Austrian economics, it's a little of both where yes, the government, or I'm sorry, the market is always screwing up, prices are sticky, Um, consumers aren't informed, Uh, companies try to get away with what they can. However, the government has all of those problems, many times worse. And so given a direct choice between the two, nine times out of 10, you want to let the market do it. Um, I mean, (laughs) there are very few situations I can imagine where a government uh, does it better than the market. So anyway, you've got those three, right? You've got the Chicago market is always good. Keynes market is always bad. Austrian, both are bad. But government is almost always worse. So if we take the 2008 crisis, for example, the sort of of establishment right view of it was leave finance alone, get rid of all the regulations. You know, finance does no evil. We have to keep the government away from it. The stereotypical Keynesian version was, you know, this is a den of thieves. And so we need to put a leash on a predatory Wall Street. And then the Austrian conclusion was actually quite close to the Keynesian one. This is a den of thieves. We have to put a a leash on them. And they're even worse because they have bribed government so that now you have this government and Wall Street union that uh, joins to fleece the people. So it can get a little complicated where, you know, we're often actually on the side of like Bernie in terms of diagnosing the problem, we just think that he's naive in thinking that government is is this, you know, sort of angel who swoops in and makes everything perfect. Now, we think that government, first of all, it's corrupt. Secondly, it's very, very stupid. And it, it, you put those together and it tends to give us results that are a good deal worse um, than business alone.
0: That's interesting. So my take on the Austrian take pretty much came entirely from Tom Woods and Bob Murphy, and yep. and their yep. their view is is not really that it. So as I recall, it's it's not really that the the market did anything particularly bad. It's that you have this bevy of regulations that has systematically distorted finance yes. for half a century, right. right? When combined with credit expansion, led to this boom bust cycle, and eventually you know inflation of housing prices, then the con- yep. commented collapse, which took the whole world down with it. So it's uh, I, I I don't know that they would summarize it the same way, I guess, is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, it, it's a matter of where you put the, uh, the emphasis. I would 100% agree with them. Um, you know, you had big business who had uh, evil thoughts, and they had the opportunity to act on those evil thoughts because government was available to them. So, uh, you know, government was the tool that they used, um, but they themselves are not angels, uh, you know, neither business. Nor government are angels. So yeah, I mean, I would I would completely agree with uh with them on the diagnosis of 2008. And when I say bad, so going back to the to the sticky wages and sticky prices, when I say the market is bad, what I mean is that the market is is never perfect. It's always trying to figure out right. So even setting aside the evil people on Wall Street, it, it, you know, when the question is, is the market perfect? Is it efficient? It is. According to austrian according to classical economics it is never efficient because the market is always a quest it is trying to find efficiency so entrepreneurs are trying to find the exact combination of product that would appeal to people other entrepreneurs are constantly trying to come in with other alternatives to steal their markets so the market is a journey right it is not this sort of perfect wing machine that that comes out uh, to perfection and so at any given moment, therefore, that's why Keynesians can come in and say, oh, this market isn't perfect, this market isn't perfect. And the answer is yes, yes, you're right. No market is absolutely perfect. Uh, you know, is is the iPhone the absolute perfect phone right now? No, it's apparently pretty close because a lot of people buy it, but um, I mean, no, it, it it is a journey. It will go on forever as entrepreneurs try to figure out new bundles, new ways to combine resources together in ways Uh, To explain those resources to people, so marketing and so on.
0: Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. So it's efficient relative to any other search process, but not efficient you know, in some idealized
1: mathematical sense. Exactly, yeah.
0: Okay, uh, I wanted to go back to something you said about AGI, and as long as it is a general purpose tool which exercises no volition, we don't have anything to worry about uh, with respect to displacement effects, but I mean, what if it does have volition? What if it is seeking some end in its life? Does your analysis change in any major way?
1: Uh, yeah, if it has volition, then at that point, um, you become very interested in who programmed it and for what purpose, uh, you know, what, what, what is the sort of Genesis, uh, code or, um, uh, you know, it gets kind of philosophical, like what would its goals be? And you're familiar with the gray goo problem, the paper clip problem. So those all strike me as extremely likely. Um, and that seems like some reasons why you wouldn't want to make You can make an AI with volition, um, but you would certainly want to have a stronger AI that uh, is obedient to put it in its place uh, if it gets out of control. And then of course, it it sort of bleeds over into epistemological questions of what is volition anyway? Is it illusion? delusion? But it strikes me that, you know, if you just put together a bunch of processing and see what happens, then it emerges into something that starts to look like a personality to us. But i can't see where the volition actually spontaneously generates we have built-in volition because of our evolutionary origins and survival of the species and so on so that's sort of the kernel that you know uh we're working with but in terms of an ai like why it it wouldn't generate that on its own i suppose people could program that in uh and at that point it just became a hyper efficient tool for achieving whatever objective they programmed in of course, the objectives could backfire. That's the genie's three wishes problem. Um, so, yeah, if it if it had volition, then I think it'd be quite dangerous. However, I can't imagine why the most powerful AI would have volition. People would do it. it board grad students would do it. Um, actually, grad students would do it to get a publication out of it. Yeah, um, some argue that's how a recent uh, pandemic started. Um, so I can imagine people doing that. And I, I mean, I... I imagine that AIs that either appear to have volition or that truly do have volition will likely exist. However, I think that they'll be massively outgunned by the obedient ones simply because there's so much money in an obedient AI that that's going to draw in the investment capital.
0: Interesting. So so a lot of your analysis does come down to this question of volition. Is it trying to achieve its own aims or is it just sitting there waiting for you to to point it at a problem and have it solve it?
1: Right. That's my operating assumption. Is given those investment dynamics, given that a obedient AI is so astronomically more valuable, a basically an AI with volition is entertaining. I mean, it's it's very very low value. Uh, in fact, it's worse than entertaining because I don't know if you remember the Tamagotchi, and yeah, you would get one, and then every so often, like your dog would get a hold of it and shake it around, and now the Tamagotchi hated you forever so i mean that was pretty close to a negative value product so it, it, i i cannot see the investment going into uh an, an ai with volitions. so i more or less write that off uh i i think it's exciting for nick Bostrom, so we can talk about uh armageddon but frankly i think it's uh it's goofy from an economic perspective who is who is going to put money into a disobedient tamagotchi to uh, such that it is better developed than the obedient ai that strikes me as very <laughs> unlikely. So when I talk about AI, I, I always assume that it looks it looks like a super tool. Uh, it looks like a you know a backhoe or a gun or whatever metaphor you uh, you like. It's something that um, achieves your objective uh, very very efficiently. And then at that point, of course, it's very interesting who exactly that AI is is obeying. So you know we can sort of pull out candidates for again who's putting the most money into it. Uh, is the one who's most likely to control the strongest AI. And the candidates might be Google, Facebook, possibly X. Uh, The the Chinese government, of course, has an entire ecosystem. The U.S. government as well has an entire ecosystem. There's various trade-offs there. I attended a talk um, by Anthropic, where they were sort of going through some of the pros and cons. Uh, And I think it's it's almost a 50-50 flip right now, whether a more or less US government dominated coalition of American tech companies, or the same on the Chinese side, whether they dominate. I don't think anybody else is even in the race, just because the amounts of money involved, um, they'll get outbid. That's shocking to me. I
0: can't believe that they would think there's a 50% chance we'd lose out to the the Chinese. I mean, there's only like three or four firms that can do it anyway. And they're all based in the United States and arguably Britain
1: with DeepMind. I, I don't even know. There's a lot of money going into it in China. Baidu uh, and Alibaba specifically uh, are putting a ton of money in it. China, not only for military applications, but for economic, it, it, it thinks it's one of the growth uh, industries of the future. So I think, I I do think China's a risk. Um, there's, but, you know, yeah, I would say it's 50-50 at this point. Very interesting. Um, I'm not going to pursue
0: that right now because uh I have some more questions about the investment dynamics. It's I, yes. I, I guess I don't, I don't share the same intuition that there would not be as much, in, there would not be as many investment dollars flowing into agentive AI. I mean, I, I don't think anybody would spend a billion dollars to get something that would deliberately disobey them. But it seems like there right. are big returns to at least some small level of agency. Like what I I think what I would want is a general purpose tool that I could say go work on cancer research twenty four hours a day for the next five years. Or something like that and that, that would have to involve a certain amount of agency right it would need to be able to to take those high level natural language instructions break them down into a series of actions maybe check with its supervisor but it's going to have to have some ability to operate in the world i, I would presume and I, and I would think there would be a lot oh, yeah, of economic sure. value in that so right. that gets you part of the way towards agency maybe, maybe you think it doesn't get you all the way i i don't know that's something we could hash out but it seems like there yeah. certainly would be a lot of value in something that could take open-ended uh instructions and and pursue a long course of action over years appropriating resources or making hires or whatever for the same reason that you would want a, a go-getter at a, in a venture capital firm or something like that it's not enough to get a savant who's memorized right. all the bylaws that does have some use but what you really want is somebody who can manage people and hire and fire and and do these sorts of things And so I would think that you would actually have more than a little investment dollars flowing into that. And it's not even counting the fact that a lot of AI labs are pitching this as the next frontier. Like now that we've got a lot of natural language figured out, go build agents. Right. So, Right.
1: Yeah, uh, without a doubt. That's, you know, the entire value of AI for, for those higher activities is that it can figure out how to do things. It has agency. Uh, I can come up with creative solutions. and But what I'm focused on is, is that core kernel, right? If we analogize it to a human, the gene, right? So the gene has certain goals. It has very, very simple goals. And then we extrapolate that out and we do all sorts of things and obedience, fundamentally, those genes. Uh, we can try to counter them, but, you know, we sort of have this built-in foundational um, mission and then we build out from that. And so that foundational mission is what I'm talking about with um, uh, volatility. So like, you know, d- does it have goals that it has spontaneously generated on its own? That I don't think is useful. I think somebody somewhere will have programmed in some sort of goal. And now you still have the three genies or the genie with the three wishes problem, right? So we may, you know, we may have this program uh, I'm sure you've uh heard about the um what was it the drone that attacked its own uh operator it was a simulation but you're oh yeah with yeah that? oh yeah well
0: yeah, that, right that's now. that's all very well known for reinforcement learning it's the, that, that's a room, exactly. not an exception
1: yep yeah so that sort of thing I think will will we'll absolutely have all sorts of uh AI disasters where they're either misprogrammed or they didn't foresee the consequences and things like that without a doubt um, what I'm dismissing is the idea that like it sort of wakes up and decides it wants to kill all humans for just because it's angry at us or something. And there's to me a surprising amount of discussion about like, well, you know, will the AI get bored and it'll want to watch us like we're in a zoo? And those like it it will only think what we program in. Like we get to put the gene in there. We get to put it maybe a badly designed gene. In Wim's case, you know, it may do weird things, but the idea that uh, that it's sort of this super genius sitting in heaven, uh, figuring out how to entertain itself—I think that's—it's anthropomorphic. I, I, I just can't see that happening. Not, not like on the genetic level. On the uh, sort of the application level, I think without a doubt, right? Uh, something that looks more like a human, that acts like a human, that appears. To choose things that appears to be creative, it just, um, you know, comes up with uh, creative solutions to things. Yes, all of those are economically valuable. Therefore, guarantee those will all exist. It will appear to have its own goals, but I think in terms of when we sort of go to the foundational, you know, will this thing turn on us and turn us into paperclips? Only if we tell it to. The, we well, might say unintentionally. Yeah. Only if we tell it to.
0: Uh, quite quite a lot I could say about that. I actually don't want to spend too much time on the AI safety stuff. I want to stick to the economics for now. Um, yep, yep. I, I was watching the most recent Nises U lectures and Peter Klein um, made the claim that he didn't believe artificial intelligence was the kind of entity that could ever bear the uncertainty that that comes from entrepreneurship, that is sort of the essence of the entrepreneurial enterprise. Uh, it, it occurs to me that that sort of interfaces with some of the conversation we've been having so far about volition and agency and whether or not it would have goals. Uh, I just wanted to get your uh, your reaction to that. Do you think that's right? Do you think that future agents could be entrepreneurial in that way? And would, wouldn't that sort of influence the discussion around agency and volition and, and danger more broadly?
1: Yeah, I think they absolutely can. I, I love Peter Klein, but I strongly disagree with him on this. Uh, I think you can act Absolutely, you know, effectively, uh, I mean, through AI, you can program creativity and entrepreneurship, I think is just one element of creativity. As long as there are incentives and the ability to be creative, then yes, I think AI can absolutely come up and come up with new products, just like they come up with art right now. That's gonna be a remarkable world when we get to it. AI entrepreneurship. will oh, be fascinating, yeah. Um, I think economic growth will go a lot faster Even countries that try to hold it back, I think, are just going to get swamped by, you know, if only one or or a handful of countries completely let AI rip, then I imagine that they will become so wealthy, basically, humans in those countries will, you know, use the AI to generate so much wealth that the holdouts are going to have to join them. This is what happened with the internet for example right so france came up with its own internet that was kind of a closed wall france telecom and the the minitel and it did great the first couple of years i mean you know people in france loved it you could check the weather you could go buy a, a train ticket you do it from the comfort of your own home it was astounding and of course it was a closed system and so very quickly it was sort of outpaced by the internet and then of course they just shut it down So I could see that happening in any country that tries to hold back AI. They're just going to shoot themselves in the foot. They're going to take them out of the race. Somebody somewhere is going to develop this. At an absolute minimum, North Korea is going to develop it. All right, So we can sort of start from there, and then we can ask, all right, well, who else is likely to develop this? So the Nick Bostroms, the Eliezer Yudkowskis, I don't think they're going to make any impact. Uh, Those are some of the guys that I do worry about on you know, when I say that uh, China might have even odds, I think those kinds of regulatory own goals are more likely in the US than they are in China. China's main goal is control, but I think that in the US regulators, we have a very decentralized set of regulators who they compete with each other and sometimes they work across purposes and they can end up just completely closing off uh, areas of innovation. So th- those kinds of risks I think exist. I think there's a chance that, say, the U.S. or the EU could completely take themselves out of the running so that the talent moves out somewhere else, probably Asia. Um, but if that were to happen, then I think that once whatever that location is starts doing really well, I think the U.S. and Europe realize the error of their ways and pull a France telecom and and uh, join the party again. I, I do take the Yudkowskian
0: case very seriously, but w- without getting much in the specifics of that, like let's set that aside. assuming that they were right or if you'd like a different example, to, you know take like, synthetic biology or you know weaponized viruses or, or uh, gain of function research, something like that. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, as an economist, how do you think about regulating those sorts of things? Because another concern I have as somebody who thinks you know Yudkowski's got a lot of good points, But I'm also an Austrian free market sort of person. It's like, well, so what what do we do with the development of a dangerous technology? Is it possible for a consortium of private companies to come together and create a regulatory body like FINRA was, which came out of the regulatory arms of the New York Stock Exchange and the the NASDAQ, right? Is that the sort of model, the private governance model that we should be thinking about for dangerous technologies? If you don't like AI, substitute something else in. But it it seems like there are risks from future technologies which are different from the sorts of risks that I think we faced in the past. If you're talking about building agents or you're talking about building uh, weaponized viruses, maybe ones that are tuned to uh, attack certain ethnic groups, there are real dangers there which are different from from the sorts of things we've dealt with in the past. And loath as I am to bring the government in for any of this sort of thing, it seems like there's some role for an a agency, maybe the government or a private agency to regulate the development of these things. Uh, how, how do you think about that just as an economist?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think my solution is closer to the second amendment, which is that there are a lot more good guys than there are bad guys. And particularly in the context where the competition here is not number of muzzles the competition here is dollars and there are a lot more good dollars than bad dollars. And so, you know, my preference is to leave it completely wide open, uh, The only way to get involved is if you have um, sort of predatory behavior by existing companies, you know, like we saw with uh, Parler last year, for example, had nothing to do with AI. But the point is that sort of course of behavior, like if you had a group of AI companies who were trying to shut out other ones, that would give me concern because that would look like a particular cabal is going to capture the entire tech. But broadly speaking, my preference is a Second Amendment solution. So everybody gets to go in. The dollars are naturally going to flow to the people who are producing things that uh, customers want, things that customers want tend to be good things. Uh, And there will be bad actors, there will be evil AIs and so on that that were funded and, and produced by evil people. But the key is the best AIs have to be by the good guys and then they can hunt down and destroy bad ais i have no idea how they'll do it because they'll be far far smarter than i um but i'm i'm a lot more interested in that sort of looking at zooming out looking at the dynamics of the market and asking are we doing everything we can to stay out of the way of the good guys because remember you know if we generally speaking anytime the government gets involved in any industry and tries to regulate it it cannot regulate the bad guys because they're illegal that's the whole point that's why You know a bunch of ragtag yahoos and you know mountains in peru can outcompete the trillion dollar american government on drugs is because they're not regulated they're hyper efficient they're very good at what they do they're very clever they're very resourceful they have the little submarines and they uh and so you don't want ai to be that kind of world where the good guys are wearing straight jackets but the bad guys are free to do whatever they want that would concern me that could get us to the point where they could overwhelm the enormous resource advantages that the good guys have coming in.
0: Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers, able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futurati-podcast.com to book Thomas or myself today, and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Well, what about for something that you really can't control once it escapes? And, uh, you know, I, I'm struggling not to make uh, comparisons to a recent pandemic, but, I mean, you can imagine j- <laughs> just like a small lab or like eight, eight or ten, you know, graduate students who are just kind of interested in synthetic bio- biology who are making something that's should it escape, there, there's really no putting it back. I mean, you're, you're not going to make a different virus that goes and hunts down the other viruses. It's now in the human population. And, I mean, it, if you're talking right. about something like crossing Ebola with the common cold, I mean, it, like... The, two, the 2020s disasters would not even begin to compare. So in, mm-hmm. in such a situation where you're dealing with a thing that should it ever breach the borders, that's kind of it. Is there any role in that case for the government to say that's too big a negative externality? You either can't do that research or it has to be done under really, really strict conditions of clean suits and air dapping and, and whatever else.
1: Right, but again, the problem is that regulating the bad guys is not on the menu it's comforting to think that it is it is not an option you cannot regulate the bad guys they are not available so the only debate we're having here is regulating the good guys and so yes it is very dangerous if the bad guys do something like that and so the solution is let the good guys rip let them go as fast as possible stay the heck out of the way whatever they need you want them to go as fast as possible so I think that you know a lot of the discussions that um, want governments get involved in it, I think they're actually catastrophically dangerous. The bad guys will go at their pace. In fact, if the good guys are handicapped, they'll go faster because the profits will be bigger. Whatever the profits are, if it's influencing America's foreign policy, if it's actual money, whatever their goals are in life, if the good guys are straightjacketed, then the bad guys get more capital, they go faster. So I think it is existentially important To stay out of the way proactively not because i don't take the risk seriously but because the risk is there it is there no matter what the government does just like coca is produced in peru no matter what the government does and so the question is what do we do to help the 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 good guys fight the bad guys does that also apply to private governance
0: setups or, or do you think the dynamics are just different if you know the the five biggest companies come together and say This is our, these are our standards. These are the conditions under which you can develop this technology. These are the safety precautions you have to take. Maybe they don't have the government to enforce it, but... Right. Do you support endeavors of that kind or should there just not be rules?
1: Uh, I I mean, if it's voluntary, absolutely. Um, If the companies can join voluntarily and companies who don't want to join don't have to join, right? And the non-joiners are not punished in some way, uh, sort of censored in... (laughs) in our ecosystem today. Um, So as long as the outsiders are not punished, then yeah, I mean, people do that all the time, you know, across all industries, like the standards for UBS or, uh, sorry, uh, USB ports or whatever. I mean, you know, companies come together and they hash out standards. So right, standard setting, I'm all for. Um, It's often helpful and it helps companies interoperate. It can reduce costs. Companies can build on each other's work if they're using interoperable standards. I think the risk is that if you have this oligopoly of companies that then specifically punishes some outsider, uh, takes some retaliatory action against them, then I think that's quite dangerous. In the past, I think I was more sanguine about it, the whole COVID slash censorship episode I think has made me a lot more skeptical uh, about (laughs) big tech companies specifically. So uh, I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. and. You know, that's also that reinforces why I say government has to leave them alone, paradoxically, uh, because, you know, government has so clearly been captured by by those guys and weaponized against uh, their enemies. So I kind of see them as on the same team. And I think the key point here is uh, you've got to sort of keep things um, moving on the uh, good guy side where new people can come in, new ideas can come in, new tools.
0: That's... that's a great perspective and, and very fascinating. Uh, taking a step back, we've talked a lot about different technologies and how they impact economics and how they develop. I mean, have you given any thought to economic models of technological development? So I, I just interviewed Terrence Keeley yesterday, who wrote The Economic Laws of Scientific Research. Just absolutely fascinating book and a, and a great guy, too. So if you have the chance to meet him, he's very warm and British and witty. Um, so I, I recommend that interaction if you can get it. But uh, we were talking specifically about the government funding of science and and, you know, how that does or does not redound to the benefit of a nation. So I'm very interested in just economic models of how technology changes and ideally something beyond the solo model, which is, as we all know, is very kind of simplistic. Uh, I, I don't know much about that kind of work or what's been out there, and you'd be in a better position than I to comment on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, generally Austrian as a rule approaches the level of um rules as opposed to specific outcomes right and so the question would be what is the most efficient rule if you want science to advance quickly and two popular options are you know one of them is that the geniuses in government figure out um, what's going to make us uh, most prosperous in the future and then they channel resources in that direction and then the other is that entrepreneurs go through a trial and error process where they guess and they're allowed to fail they're allowed to succeed and, you know, of course I favor the um the latter process. You're always going to have waste. Uh, of course you're gonna have duplication, and so on. In the former, however, you know, that has been tried many times. The Soviet Union, of course, had Lysenkoism, which I suppose looked great on paper. They tried it. What was that, where they froze seeds to allegedly increase yield, and so they got a famine out of that one. Um You know, if we take sort of the iconic science moment for the United States, it would be the Apollo program. And this is often trumpeted as, you know, like, we never would have gotten to the moon if it weren't for the government. Well, okay, but there's also an interesting detail that the U.S. dominated worldwide electronics, cameras, TVs, okay? Like, the U.S. produced all of that stuff. Germany and Japan were rinky-dink has-beens. And then the Apollo project sucked every single brain in the country into this stupid project. <laughs> for what? For public relations. I, I, I mean, what? What exactly did we achieve on the moon uh, to show off, to wave the flag, even if you believe it was real But uh, So, <laughs> you know, what was was Apollo worth uh, handing our entire electronics industry to Japan, for example? Uh, the entire precision goods industry to Germany, I think absolutely not. Uh, we're seeing the same thing in a permanent form today, where you know the U.S. Uh, draws so much talent out of Silicon Valley uh, into defense manufacturing into spy technology. I don't want them to do that. <laughs> I I don't want those technologies to be well developed. I want them to be primitive, so those people can go back to actually making things that make people prosperous.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate your time and talking me through all this. I, I think that in futurism, more generally, economics is a huge lacuna, it's a huge blind spot. Like most of the people who are brilliant computer scientists and brilliant this and that are actually not very good at this kind of thing. And so I, I appreciate you talking to me about this and, and lending your insight. Is there any in with
1: Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm a complete idiot on anything scientific. Uh, I went to public school, so, you know, that this is what I always tell my kids. You, you did the best uh, you could. You,
0: you've done the best you could with what you were me.
1: I really did. No, so I really appreciate, you know, if I can give them economics insights because they give me a lot of insights that I've been know before. So and anybody who can do real work is, uh, I respect them a lot.
0: Well, fantastic. Thanks so much. Uh, we appreciate your yeah. time and wish you the best of luck in future endeavors. All right.
1: Thanks, Trent.